0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: begin this morning by reminding us of sort of where we're at in our reading. We're at Exodus chapters 3 and 4, and what we've been doing for the past six months or so is we've been thinking through the scriptures. The goal has been to take us back. We went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and we've been reading through the biblical narrative, trying to understand the biblical narrative and the details that are there in, in their proper context, obviously, where we see them, and then how we can... Truly think about them and arrive at an understanding for us today. So, if you'd like to turn with me in the Pew Bible there to Exodus chapters 3 and 4, I'll let you know the page number here in a moment. 58. 58, thank you. Another thing that we've been doing, besides thinking through the scriptures, is we've highlighted this season, if you will, the season of fire. And I've Challenges us to mark out three exoduses, right? We see the exodus we're dealing with here um, regarding Israel and Egypt, you know, the primary, the first exodus. Then we have the second exodus, which is a, a theme that we see in the New Testament, and how the Apostle Paul says that the first exodus was an example given to the New Testament church, and how they were coming out of bondage to sin and coming into the glorious promised land, the reality in Christ Jesus. And then I challenge us that there's a third exodus. And the third exodus is our lives. The reality of us coming from leaning upon our own understandings, being stuck in depravity to ultimately finding ourselves seated and rooted in Jesus Christ. And I believe it's important for us to mark out each one of those exoduses and understand truths in their proper context as per that exodus. So when we're looking at the book of Exodus, we're understanding which is the story of national Israel. When we're looking at the New Testament, we're looking at the establishment of the Christian church. When we're looking at our lives, preferably we all kind of got that one understood, that we're looking at our lives and our exodus from destructive habits or destructive lifestyles. And I mean that in every way possible. Again, you know, that meaning upon our own understanding, in whatever way, is a destructive lifestyle. Last week, or also before I get into last week, um, another thing about the season of fire is we've marked out a couple things. Um, when we look at the, the term fire... Right? We see quite a few synonyms found in Scripture. Um, love is compared to fire. We see that even in our contemporary culture. And then we have passion. The uh, prophet Jeremiah says that he had the word of judgment, the judgment of uh, Jerusalem. He had it shut up in his bones like a fire. And you know, when you read that and you don't think about passion, I wouldn't know how to explain what he's, see, what he's saying otherwise. Than to say that that word was like a fire, like a passion in his bones, and then of course judgment. We see the fire coming down from heaven all throughout Scripture, symbolizing the judgment of God. And another thing I have marked out lately is uh, two things: is knowledge. Knowledge is like fire, as you know, it, it spreads, it grows. Um, you see that being synonymous with fire, and also purification, right? Purification, judgment, perfectly knowledge, judgment. Actually, perfectly love, passion, knowledge, and judgment all come together for you to help you understand purification. Hopefully you're moving away from impure passions, moving into being passionate about the things of God. You're moving away from love of self, a carnalistic love. You're moving into a greater love of the things of God, Uh, becoming passionate, less passionate about carnal things, more passionate about the things of God, and so on and so forth. Purified from the things of the flesh to the things of the spirit. And hopefully, that's what this summer means to you. That's what I've marked out in my life, and that's what I'm challenging us to when we say the season of fire, to mark out from June to September, and to say not only to understand the story of the Exodus, the biblical story, but also to understand how that applies in the book of Revelation, which we're going to be getting into in a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to see how Exodus and Revelation have a similar story, and also to apply these details to our lives, to understand how all of this applies. Now, last week we did that, and we talked about Amram and Jochebed, right? We talked about the father, the father and mother of Moses and how they lived out a responsible faith. And I brought before each and every one of us about five different things that we should mark out in our lives that would help us to have that same type of responsible faith that Amram and Jochebed had uh, lived out. So I pray that um, you mark those things out in your life and that you have grown in your faith and that you are advancing um, to a responsible faith if you don't already find yourself there, of course. Um, so that brings me to our text. In Exodus chapters 3 and 4, the most highlighted detail from our text is the two responses from God that we see here. Obviously, we see Moses. Moses in Exodus chapters chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, we see that God appears to Moses. And, you know, we, we go through this whole discourse of God telling Moses to remove his shoes, to not, you know, this place is a holy ground, and I had challenged us last week to to take notice of that, to take notice of what is being said to Moses, that where Moses is standing, God is telling him to remove his shoes, gray standing as holy ground. In other words, consider the ground that you stand upon. And I challenged all of us that we need to be doing the same, that we need to be challenging the ground that we stand upon. Uh, How holy is the ground that you stand upon? If Christ is with us, we should be saying that at every moment. And therefore, what does that presence of God require of us in every moment, in every step? Um, Consider where you stand in Christ. Examine yourself is the New Testament way of saying that. And uh, I believe that what we see here in Exodus chapters 3 through 4, Moses' response and the Pharaoh's response, which we see in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, we see the Pharaoh was hardened against the truth of God, right? God hardened his heart. I believe that everybody in this room is probably on the same page as me that we want to respond like Moses, right? Because then the next thing we see is Moses ends up being humbled. He says... You know, he has an attitude of, why would this God appear to me? And now he's going to appear to me and he's going to send me. Who am I? And I imagine most of us have had a similar experience in our lives where we say, um, maybe even pertaining to the faith, we may say something like, um, why would God save me? Why did God see it, you know, um, see to it that I would be saved? Why did God choose this man, Mike Niana? Why did God choose this church? Why did he choose us? Why didn't he harden our hearts like he did the Pharaoh's? Because, again, we see a lot of people out in our culture, and I'm sure you're all seeing it with me, They have hardened hearts. And it causes us to just have an appreciation, not only a humbleness into God being in our lives, but it should cause us to have an appreciation for God opening our eyes so that we may see. And, again, that's the most basic element of Exodus chapters 3 through 4 that we see is the two responses here of Moses and Pharaoh. One commentator said this, talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. They said, many were troubled by statements in Exodus that God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. If God made Pharaoh to resist him, was it fair to punish him for it? The text also does say, although the text does say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's no getting around that. That's Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. However, when you go to Exodus chapter eight verse thirty-two, or you go to Exodus chapter nine verse thirty-four through thirty-five, it says that the Pharaoh hardened his heart. So, to just give one or the other, and I'm imagining many of you know the intricacies of that conversation. There, um, again, what we should do—we should not leave that conversation saying, "Oh, it was all Pharaoh had nothing to do with it," or that God had nothing to do with it, or that God followed. Pharaoh's decisions or, or anything of that sort. Perfectly was convinced as I am that the sovereignty of God must precede any move of God. So, therefore, God already knew that the Pharaoh would harden his heart, and therefore God hardened his heart and furthered that stubbornness in the Pharaoh's heart. However, I believe that God's hardening came prior to the, the Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart. And again, always putting the sovereignty of God before the decision of man. And I made that point recently to somebody. I said, I don't know that I'm comfortable saying that I make decisions before God has knowledge of them or before God has made a decisive act. I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, That's the sign in the front of our church that says Sovereign Grace Church. That's pretty much that point there. We are a sovereign grace church. We understand that God's sovereign grace precedes any decision that any of us have ever made. So I would venture to say that these two responses, Moses and the Pharaoh, sum up the responses of all men. We are either humbled by his presence or we are hardened against it. The how and whys can get a bit complicated. The calling of Moses. Why did God choose Moses? What was it about Moses? Was it something about Moses? The hardening of Pharaoh. However, what is clear is what response we want to take. Personally, you all know that story and you say, I want to respond like Moses, because we ultimately know how the story plays out. I know, anybody in the room want to harden their heart against God? We can do with that right now. We'll cast the demons out, and we'll, we'll fix it, right? Um, all right. So uh, I'm glad that we're all in agreement with so Now I want to move us into a little bit more in-depth of a topic now. So what does this say to us? We're all in agreement. We want to respond like Moses. We want to be humbled by the presence of God. We want to respond saying, God, who am I that you choose me? Here uh, we Christ's church. So the next point I want to bring us into, which is actually the title of this morning's sermon, Responding to God as the Body of the Greater Moses. Now, if you're not understanding uh, what I mean by the Greater Moses, I just want to use a text, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and I'll read that to you. Again, Hebrews being a letter written to Jewish Christians to help them understand how these New Testament details, Jesus being the... New Exodus, Jesus being the greater Moses. Um, This letter is explaining that to Christians that would have been confused in that regard. So here in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope from until the end. So I'm making the case this morning, and I'm going to attach that to Ephesians 4.4, which says there's one faith, one hope, one baptism. You see the hope and the house are connected here. And I'm also going to make the case that this house, this house of the Lord, is the body of Christ, is the body of the greater Moses, being Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge us, and we should all know that. We're already in agreement there. I don't have to worry about anybody throwing anything at me yet. And uh, we should all be in agreement that this is the body of the greater Moses. If when we get into our responsibility there, I might have to do some ducking and uh, covering. So we'll see as we get there. The question I want to impress upon us this morning is, now that we know how we've responded to God's grace and his salvation, how are we to respond, and I believe it's going to be before us as we look through this, these details in Exodus chapters 3-4 through 4 this morning, how are we, the body of Christ, to respond, the body of the greater Moses, to respond to all that we see in the world? What is our goal? What are we supposed to be pressing on toward? And I believe that to be important as we look toward our semi-annual meeting, I do also want to say, I didn't say this before, um, everybody here is allowed to attend a semi-annual meeting. I hope everybody knows that. Attendees, members, everybody can be in attendance. The only difference is who votes and all that good stuff. But uh, please, if, you, if you'd like to know more about the direction of our church, you'd like to know about our leadership, especially as I impress upon you our responsibilities this morning and how we should be responding, I imagine maybe some of you will be curious and say, you know, I want to attend that semiannual meeting to see the direction of this greater body of Moses. So let's move into some of those stuff here. We um, see in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, that Moses is given miraculous power to authenticate him as the messenger of God. And I happen to believe that the gospel is our miraculous power. I believe that in the first century, Christ Obviously, Christ and His apostles had miracles follow them to establish the gospel, and to my uh, to the detriment of the church, it it seems today many people want to pretend that we're still living in that that time that we need you know that where the, the miracles needed to follow the work of and I'm talking about the New Testament miracles. They needed to follow the work of the gospel being preached. Obviously, I don't believe that we're living in that time. I believe that everything. All the miraculous power is now contained within the gospel. The gospel, when you see a sinner come to the knowledge of God, that's the New Testament. That's the miracle that we're looking for. Those are the miracles that follow us. So I don't believe that we're supposed to be so obsessed with the let's walk around and heal people, let's walk around and raise the dead, because I believe all of that was done to establish the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once the gospel is established with one of the greatest miracles of all, God's judgment being shown in that generation, once all of that was established, the gospel is now the means of miracles. When we preach the gospel and we see people come to understand what we're saying, that spiritual wisdom, it says in 1 Corinthians 2, right? Uh, com- preaching spiritual words with spiritual wisdom. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. When we do that and we see people, that makes sense to somebody, that's a miracle. That's the miracles that follow the saints today as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please, continue to press on with the gospel, amen? And I bring that up because well, I'm going to mark out here some of the things that followed Moses. You know, Moses had some things that uh, miraculous things that I believe if we understand how they're applied to him and we don't necessarily just rip them out and say, well, it has to look exactly like that for us today, but we understand the realities of the miracles that were given to Moses and we properly assess them I believe that we can gain clarity as to what they mean for us today. And I'm going to show us that. So, I wrote in my notes here the prophetic plan. And I believe it's important when we pick up our Bible to say, this is a big book, right? I'm sure I everybody in agreement there. This one, maybe not so much. There's some bigger Bibles around. Um, this is a big book. There's a large story in this book. And it's stories within stories of different details. And I say that because we are not at liberty to just jump into any of the details and just kind of say, well, this is where we're at. And unfortunately, I know many of us know this, but the larger body, those that might be listening this morning, they don't know that. They don't know that we have to really understand the details of this book and understand, you know, what pieces apply to us, what pieces, I believe all of it applies to us, let me say that. However, how it applies to us. And we don't necessarily put ourselves in every, you know, spot. So, it's important. It's, understand, it's important to understand the difference between what was going on in the first exodus compared to what was happening with the second exodus in the New Testament, and then again, of course, how those details apply to our current situation and our current exodus from the life that we formerly lived. Cindy Coates was one of our speakers at our conference this year, and she made a great statement that pretty much sums up everything I would say about where we're at right now. Jesus is not coming to us. He's coming through us. To me, that's the gospel right there. Jesus, again, the exodus was they needed to be brought out of Egypt to brought into the promised land. The New Testament exodus, the second exodus, was they needed to be brought out of the bondage to the things of the flesh, whether it was law or it was the Gentiles in their idolatry. They needed to be brought out of that and brought into the fullness of Christ, which, again, was fully consummated in A.D. 70 at that judgment. The judgment has now been rendered. You're in Christ, you're outside of Christ. And then you have where we're at now. And, and again, we know in AD 70, the fullness of Christ had taken up residence in his church, a reality we celebrate on the first of the month, when we take the communion and we know that we're the reality we're saying is we're not professing his death until he comes, we're professing his presence since he came. And that's exactly what Cindy Close is pointing out, that we're not waiting for Christ to come to us, he's coming through us to a world that desperately needs him. So my goal is to teach us, is to teach and have us think through some of the poignant points marked out in Exodus, and to understand them as applying to our current situation, in this where we're at in the prophetic plan. Where I say this marks out our proper response to what we are called to do as the body of the Greater Moses. So we're call these leadership principles, Mike. Right? That's what I believe. I believe we need to lead forward as the body of the Greater Moses. And. Uh, I wonder, is that to say the body of the greater Moses? Because we're all talking about Jesus. I just wonder if maybe I should mark out the body of Jesus, right? The body of Jesus Christ. There's power in the name, right? It's, you have to believe that. So uh, talking about Exodus chapters 3 through 4, I want to mark out some things. The first thing is, is um, as many commentators talk about when we enter into this story, and it's obviously something that would be, in our carnalistic world, we would say, why doesn't God remove Moses' disability? Because you notice right there when Moses is called, the first thing he begins to complain about is, not me, I can't speak, I'm, you know, I have these problems. He probably went on to say, I just killed a man over in you know, Egypt. I, I go, Don't send me. Please, I'm not the guy for the job. Obviously, uh, many people point out if, if you study through Moses' life and you try to take a look at just examining him, his personality as per the story, it would seem that he was not diplomatic, probably not the guy for the job. And uh, they, the commentators mark out a couple of things. Um, first off I'll point out a couple as to why God didn't remove Moses' disability because again for me again I'm a preacher I get in the pulpit I'm one of those people that I turn to God and I say you know well, why me well, why would you choose me and I imagine as all of us we're, we're the priests of God everybody in this room so you should be if you haven't you should be turning back to God and being a bit humble and saying why me why have you chosen me to be the example to a world that needs you so then when we do that when we look at the story of Moses, we say, well, I mean, again, I know for me, has God removed your disabilities, your weaknesses, your thorn in the flesh? Um, you know, maybe you're, now i got you thinking, what is my thorn in the flesh? Um, Moses obviously was very prevalent. He knew it. He's seen it. So why didn't God remove the disability? Now, this is what some commentators would point out. First thing is Moses didn't ask. You don't see that anywhere in the text that Moses says, then we'll me And then obviously, you know, there's many today that name it, proclaim it, have it a uh, crowd that would say that if you don't name it and proclaim it you don't get it I don't know how much I, I think that that's what's going on in the text but I, again I do believe there's something we can gain from that right if, if you want something and you desire something ask God for it it's hard to say that you you know I wanted I didn't ask him well then you didn't get it so uh, well, I do believe there's some wisdom there however I, I'm not a prosperity preacher I'm not going to sit here and name it and claim it uh, type of stuff But I do believe it's imperative that we ask God for what we would desire. And also in our natural life, we would ask the things that we also need. You know, we have a benevolent offering here. Anybody has any need, you see this. You need to ask. If you want to receive, you must ask. The next point would be it would violate God's natural order. Um, Some would have the understanding that, you know, God wasn't looking to do that, looking to change Moses' speech impediment, if that's what we're qualifying as his disability. Um, Some would argue that it's not Moses' physical disability, that it's more of a spiritual problem, or maybe Moses didn't quite understand the language of the Egyptians, so he didn't understand why God would send him, and that's why he's complaining to God. Um, Hopefully, you all know what I'm speaking about there. In in, uh, Exodus chapter 3, when God comes to Moses, he tells him, I am not eloquent of speech. And he uses quite a few different phrases that some commentators have put up for dispute as to did it mean that he stuttered? Did it mean that he didn't speak the language of the Egyptians? It could mean a whole host of different things. Um, Another example of why the story, why God doesn't heal Moses' disability or remove the disability is that God wanted to include Aaron. Because if you remember the story, what happens is Moses says, listen, I'm not really good at speaking. You know, I'm not the man for the job. And obviously, looking at his brother, you'd imagine looking over there at Aaron and saying his cousin. And uh, Aaron, Moses' cousin? Am I getting the story mixed up? Is his brother or his cousin? Actually, I'm glad that you said that, because in the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew word there for brother can also kind of be twisted to mean cousin. So thank you for pointing that out. Um, Either way, uh, so Aaron and Moses, they set up a prototype. The reason why God would not fix Moses and just send Moses is because Aaron and Moses together make a prototype for effective leadership. You see, Aaron comes off as a priest. He comes off as a more diplomatic, whereas Moses is not very diplomatic. And, and actually, to kind of give us a proof text as to Moses not being diplomatic, I would point out, look at what happened when he went to talk to his brothers about them fighting with each other. It wasn't very, it was a rather quick incident. You know, it just happened very quickly. Um, you you don't see a lot of diplomacy in that conversation there. Also, one that hits close to home, and I believe speaks to each and every one of us, is that God did not remove whatever disability Moses was dealing with, because God wanted Moses to know that perfection is not a prerequisite for accomplishment. I don't have to fix all your wrongs to get you to accomplish my tasks. As the the popular saying in our culture goes, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So, again, I believe there's some things that we can all take from that, that we can understand that, you know, we don't need to be perfect. You know, we don't need to be perfect as we go out to be the body of the greater Moses. We go about bringing healing of the nation, And, you know, that's unfortunately that's a carnal uh, thing in our society. I know many people say, oh, the church is going to heal the nations. They can't even fix themselves. Well, no, it's an imperfect body. You get that. The perfect body full of imperfect members. Probably the right way to say that. Um, so, again, that's one of the major things that we can get from God calling Moses. I believe this kind of speaks to us. Now, another thing we see here in Exodus chapters 3 through 4 is Moses lists five excuses. I have written in my note five lame excuses as to why we cannot fulfill God's call. And uh, one of the things one commentator had pointed out about this is that we can sometimes carry humility a bit too far. It doesn't seem that he's, he's doing it here. Uh, we get it, Moses. You, you know, you're, you're not eloquent. You're probably not the right man for the job. But God has called you. Moses still puts up the fight. You see, whereas there comes a point where you have to say, okay, you know what, God? I get it. You're going you're gonna to be my strength. You're going to go before me. I don't have to fix it all up and be perfect. And you know, There's far too many, I would say this, there's far too many people that can be used by God right now in their flaws and disabilities that are not doing so because they believe that God needs to fix something about them or needs to do something about them. And that's not the case at all. It's not the case. So uh, their humility goes a bit too far and they you begin to say, well, God would not want to use me. God, don't do that. One thing we can mark out from this is don't do that. That's not the way that this works. I'm going to show you. So Moses' first thing here in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? So basically Moses sees no ability in and of himself. And personally, you all know the New Testament text that I'm going to turn to that's going to point out the response to that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I'm not going to turn to it. I'm just going to tell you what it is. Uh, Philippians four thirteen. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, again, what Moses needed to do here was realize, no, no, it's not your ability. That's right. You don't have the ability to do this. Just as we, the church today, do not have the ability to hear the world. I don't believe anybody in this room, in and of ourselves, has any ability, maybe some, maybe a little bit, but um, we don't have the ability to heal the world. And uh, we know that we don't do this by our ability, thank God. We do this by the, the strengthening of Christ who works through us. The next thing is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Then said Moses to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will, go, I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say for them? So now Moses comes up with, I don't know what to tell them. I have no message. What do I do? And perfectly, everybody in this room is convinced we do have a message. Right? We know the message. Moses was equipped with a message. I am has sent you. And we're equipped with a message. I am has sent us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, we read about, or actually 1 through 4, we read about the gospel that we are sent with, the gospel according to the scriptures that we have been sent with, the gospel that was established by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of the apostles preached. That's our gospel. The book of Jude tells us to defend the faith as it was delivered to the apostles. That's our message. Revelation chapter 22 verse 2 talks about the fruit of the tree. Perfectly we all understand that we are a tree that has grown up for the Lord. Because the fruit of the tree will be used for the healing of the nations. We sure do have a message. So we can't say that. We can't say to God, we don't know what to say. I don't know what to tell these people. It might be hard. I promise you this. Telling the world about the healing of the nations is just as hard as Yes, just as hard thinking about it, but yeah, I'm going to say it. Uh, It's just as hard as Moses going to tell the Pharaoh about the things of God, about God setting them free. The next thing you see in Exodus chapter 4 verse 1, then said Moses, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. So obviously this is a challenge of authority. They don't believe I'm the guy that has the message. I have no authority. And Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we read that Great Commission there. And while I believe that the Great Commission was fulfilled in the first century, I believe the gospel was preached to the ends of the world. I believe that today we're continuing that work. And I believe that we have that same authority that was given to the apostles in the first century. I believe we operate by that same authority, the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Moses says, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am now slow of speech and slow of tongue. That's what I was talking about there. Um, there seems to be some division as to what those phrases mean between different commentators and scholars. Um, either way, I'll take you to another Philippians text. Philippians chapter two, verse thirteen. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See the answer there. It's God that works in you. Don't worry about it. It's not about whether you can speak well or any of that. And obviously we see again and again the Apostle Paul in his writings. He remarks that he didn't, this is not by eloquence. The power of God is not made known by men with beautiful words. It's made known by the power of God, the work of God, which, again, I would assert is the proclamation of the gospel. And then the last thing here, the fifth thing I've marked out, Exodus chapter 4, verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And it's almost as though Moses is kind of throwing this off like, I don't really feel inclined to do this. I don't feel that yeah, I'm being led. So please find somebody that will. And again, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, the same text we just said, It's God who works in you to will and to work. And that's what, uh, we do have the inclination, because God is working in and through us. Galatians 2.20, it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives through me. And we do have an inclination to bring this message. So, personally, nobody in this room will ever say any of those five things. And now you have the answers, if you ever feel that any of those five ways. So now I want to move into talking about the, uh, the three different things that Moses has commanded in Exodus chapter 4, um, to take with him on this journey to go to the Pharaoh. The first thing is the shepherd's rod. Now right? you remember the story where God basically challenges Moses, look at the rod that you have in your hand. And he says, throw it on the floor. Basically, give it to me. And then God turns it into a serpent. And he says that this staff you he will take with you. You see this in Exodus chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Exodus chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, as well as Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, where it says that he took it with him when he left the land. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, the Lord spoke of the rod of iron that would be used to bring about the total destruction of the present evil order of things. Again, which was judgment in the first century upon Jerusalem. This was to overthrow the bondage that the first century Christians were in to Babylon, Jerusalem, as marked that in the book of Revelation. Here we see a correlation with this shepherd's rod in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, this Rod is going to be used to bring about the ten plagues of Egypt. The rod is also used to walk over the waters. The rod is basically used to symbolize God's power and victory. And perfectly, each and every one of us are convinced that we have God's power and victory with us in the name of Jesus Christ. That is our rod. Our rod is the name of Jesus Christ. God does he says, show me your hand. Moses shows him his hand, and he allows his hand to become leprous. And then God heals it. Now you see this in Exodus 4, 6-8. And, of course, this highlights God's healing power. So not only is God's power and victory going to go with him as he holds this staff, this rod, God's healing power is going to go with him. And he exemplifies that by healing Moses' hand. Some would argue that this is also a demonstration of Israel being in an afflicted state and needing to be healed, which Moses is going to bring forth. God's healing word is brought through the knowledge that the manifold wisdom of God that is made known by the greater body of Moses. So you see? We have his God, we have his victory in the name, and we have his healing power, which is contained within us, proclaiming the gospel, making known the manifold wisdom of God. And then the last thing in Exodus chapter 4, verse 9, God tells Moses that the last thing he will give him is when they do not listen to him, he will take the water out of the Nile, and he will pour it onto the land, and it will turn into blood. So what is this supposed to mean? And ultimately, this shows God's power and sovereignty in the message that is being proclaimed. We might simply say it's his revealed judgment. You proclaim the message, they don't listen, you take the water, you dump it on the land and you say, okay, well, the message has been made known, your blood is on your own hand. And ultimately we know we're going to get into that rather crazy story of all the plagues and how that correlates also with the book of Revelation um, in the next couple weeks. So my point would be this. Like Moses took all these things, he had those five things to say and we can see how they're reversed by understanding the truth of the New Testament, by understanding our our life in Christ. But he also was given these three miraculous things to take with him to Egypt. And I believe that when we properly understand those things as to our place in the prophetic plan, we can understand that we take those things with us too as we enter into an Egypt of sorts. Um, So we must properly hold those things in our hands. We must properly assess them. Now, I want to finalize, but just talking about uh, neglecting the leadership role, there's something that happens here. It's only three or four verses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, and I want to read it to you. Now, i about at the lodging place on the way. Now, remember, God has commissioned Moses. And he gave him all this stuff, and he said, All hey, right, go to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh. Moses is leaving the land of Midian to go to Egypt. They're lodging on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, and at that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So uh, what is going on here? Nothing like being commissioned for a mission, and you're halfway there, not even halfway there, and all of a sudden God's already ready to kill you. Why? What did Moses do wrong? What's the story about? Obviously, this is the highlight, the thing that's being highlighted here is that Moses did not circumcise his son Gershom. And I love what the Whitcliffe Bible Commentary said about this. As I read quite a few different theories about what these three passages here mean, I thought the Whitcliffe Bible Commentary gave us the most challenge and seemed to be most in line with what the text is saying. It says this, this passage, which is diminished by many many modern commentators as a curious relic of folklore and superstition, is in fact an illustration of a spiritual law that runs throughout scripture and history. He who would proclaim God's will to others must himself be obedient to the express will of God in his own life. The sign of circumcision decreed by God in Genesis chapter seventeen, verses nine through fourteen, had been neglected by Moses until God forcibly reminded him of the obligation. Next cause us a little bit of now, a little bit of challenge there to look and say, well, God would go to the extent if God commanded something and you don't properly take care of the things you're supposed to take care of, God will go to the very extent of bringing you to your death to show you that you need to be responsible for your work. That maybe is the reason why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament said things such as, "With fear and trembling I work out my salvation," because he understood the details of how God requires us to walk worthy of our call. How often in the New Testament do we see that challenge, that we have to walk worthy of the calling that we have been called by? God wants Moses to recognize that communal leadership cannot be used as an abdication of personal responsibility. Leadership must be marked by the highest level of personal conduct. To whom much is given, much is required. And here again, the greater body of Moses, the body of Christ, we have been given a lot. We have been given, as per the writings of Peter, we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. So how much is required of us? When we look at it, this world and we think about all these things, we are sent. We have no excuse. My goal this morning was to show you Moses thought he had excuses. The excuses are all taken away. No excuse. So we must respond and we must be a people that actually do carry on methods, that do feel inclined, that, looking at those five things I marked out there, I did not mark them out, right? Um, we do have ability we do have a message we do have authority we do have eloquence because it is not through us but it is by Christ who works in and through us and we do have inclination we better so that's our responding to God as the greater body of Moses and just to say something real quickly um, if anybody's interested in the bridegroom of blood concept there that's being marked out, um, ultimately it's talking about the need for circumcision. Zipporah wasn't of Israel. Zipporah understood that Moses, by the way of circumcision, would have made her of covenant. That is the point there, that Moses is the man that will bring about the covenant because covenant is made known through circumcision. So there's some interesting details there. I'd love to uh, send you an article. Dr. Michael Heiser, actually, I don't find myself in agreement with him a lot. However, he does have a great article on the broad room of bread. And I'd love to send you that link if you're interested. And now I just want to close with some sending remarks. The next two weeks, if you're taking notes, I'm going to share with you the next two weeks of reading that you should be preparing for as we're going to be going through our sermons here. Next week, you should read Exodus 4, 27 through chapter 6, verse 30. It's only two chapters. And uh, some resources I'm going to be bringing about this week to help edifying your study um, as we go through the season of fire is clarity and revelation, as I mentioned earlier. And of course it's time for change conference that I'll be speaking at on June 30th. And then the following week, you want to be reading Exodus chapters seven through 14. Yes. Seven chapters this time. And, uh, we're going to be continuing though. The the good thing about that is I imagine we're going to spend quite a few weeks in Exodus chapters seven through 14, which again is the bringing about of the plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt. So, uh, that's what we'll be reading, and of course, when we get into that, I'm looking to bring out a lot of great details. For example, the Exodus-Revelation connection. We're going to see the similarities between that first exodus and the second exodus. Um, I'm going to be doing an interview on my radio show with David Gates. He's one of the upcoming speakers with me about the book of Revelation at the conference in August, so that you'll definitely want to tune into that. And with him, I'll be talking about the second exodus motif as you see Exodus and Revelation comparing. We'll be talking about baptism, as there's some details here about baptism that are brought out in the Exodus, and the Lord's Supper. And of course, uh, continuing the review of the clarity of Revelation. So please, be ready to be fired up, fall more in love with the things of God as we move into this season, and we continue to uh, understand God's word. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've given to us. And Lord, this morning, we examine ourselves, and we to hold ourselves accountable to the fact that to whom much is given, much is required. Lord, we know you are at work in this world, and we know that much of your work involves us, your body. This morning, Lord, as we went through all of these these details, and we highlighted Moses' journey to become the, the one who would lead his people out of bondage in Egypt, Lord, we ask that you empower us to understand how that applies to the gospel and how we are healing the world, healing the nation's word by way of your miraculous gospel. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.